let's jump into our series on evangelism. We started for, this is the fourth week, it, the kind of theme statement from the book of Acts 18, God told Paul to speak and do not be silent. Speak and do not be silent. Evangelism is vocal. Yes, it's also non-vocal with actions, with service and all those things, but evangelism, communicating is vocal. I'll tell you why. Above everything Jesus did, he preached and taught on the kingdom of heaven. I'm quoting in scriptures more than anything else. Did he do miracles? Absolutely. Did he feed thousands? Absolutely. Did he walk on water? Absolutely. But his primary ministry, even textually looking at the gospels, number one was preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. That's evangelism. That's who he was. He came to seek and save those that are lost. So let's look at one of um, the characters in the Bible in Acts 8, and we're going to learn some new things from the Word of God. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 26. Open your Bible, swipe, find it. A little setup, if you will. This is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This is not the Philip of the 12 disciples. It was two good Philips in the Bible and two bad ones. Two bad ones were with King Herod and stuff. They were in his court. They were bad. You can always, Usually if your name's Herod, it's connected to bad things. It's like Hitler. It's like, oh, bad. The two good ones are the first Philip who is the tw- of the 12 apostles called by Jesus. This is the second Philip who we find coming on the scene in Acts chapter 6. If you remember, the church is growing, all these things happening, and the, the, uh, some of the apostles, the disciples, are praying and fasting, and the Lord says, separate these seven men. Philip was one of the seven. I tell you who's the most famous of the seven, Stephen, the first martyr, Christian martyr. He was in the same group. So Philip has a long and successful ministry This is a big chunk of what God did this miraculous thing with him, but really he was a pastor for many years in Caesarea. He's famous because he had four daughters who were all prophetesses, the Bible says. That's Acts 26. So this is who this person is. This is probably one of the highlights of his day and ministry here in Acts 26. So let's pick it up. I'm sorry, Acts 8 verse 26. Let's pick it up right here. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting on his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. A God-fearing man, someone who had understood the Old Testament. Someone, because the Jews are spread out all over the world, who had had some kind of God understanding. He's reading Isaiah. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. 
And who will declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. Obviously, a prophecy about Jesus. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this of? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and being at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Preached Jesus to him. Now as he was... Now, as he went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip up away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found in Atoza. And passing by, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea where he spent most of his life and ministry. Amazing story. When I was a kid, I loved this story. Why? Because I watched Star Trek with my dad and this guy got beamed up. And that's all I cared about in the story. That guy got beamed up. Can I do this? If I serve the Lord, will I get to do this? I'll serve you, Lord, if you can beam me up and then put me somewhere else. Now, as a child, that's really what stuck out in my mind. That's all I thought about. But as I was reflecting on this this week, I thought, you know, this is about evangelism. Yes, it's miraculous, amazing. Oh, that's so cool. We may not actually, well, all that'll happen to all of us. We'll be caught up with the Lord. We'll all get to get beamed up. Okay, I'm getting off the Bible, y'all. Don't, it's not weird here. <laughs> so, but this entire text is about one-on-one evangelism. It's about reaching someone who kind of knows about God, who understands some things, but does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is where all, so many of the lost people are in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, with you today, and me too. Amen? Some kind of knowledge... It's not like it's an unreached people group in the jungle who has no concept of a God, no concept of Jesus, some kind of religiosity, but does not, have not had the sealing, changing power of the Holy Spirit, have come under the blood of Christ, has not fallen on their knees and said, I believe with all my heart, I need to be baptized. This is the place that everyone, that all of us must get, must proclaim and get people to Jesus for salvation. The salvation is His alone. But this is a beautiful picture. Let's learn some things from the Word of God here. All right, you've got notes there. Let's look at this. How does our story start off? Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's vague. Listen, I just want you to go to Acadiana and you just start this church The Lord was not that vague with me. He made some specifics. But there's a lot of unanswered questions in this text. Just get up and start walking to where I tell you to go. You get up and you do what I tell you to do, Philip, because you're born again. The Spirit of the Lord lives on the inside of you and you obey. You know my voice. Go and do it. Whoa. This is actually the recipe for all successful ministry. Once you know Jesus, you know the Word, you know the voice of the Lord, He spent time being trained, He spent time in the Word of God, He's not a novel Christian. When the Lord says do something, we do it. And the Lord is not silent. Jesus said the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, the voice of a stranger they don't follow. But my sheep hear my voice and I lead them out. 
This is, we have to come to the place where we know, Lord, I'm expecting you to speak to me. I'm expecting you to lead me. I'm expecting you just to lean on me, say, right over there. It's not a big audible voice. Sometimes it's not an angel of the Lord. Usually it's just a spirit leaning on you saying, go do that right there, right? We've had those encounters before, isn't it? I love when I don't have to yell at my kids to get their attention. Oh, I love it. I love when I don't have to grab their face and pull them over because maybe the TV was on or something and say, did you hear what daddy said? I love when I can walk in and say, can you go do this? And they say, yes, sir, the first time. Oh, come on, come on. That is the best. That's the way Jesus feels. Oh, he does. I have had the times when he has to grab my face after the third time, pull me over and say, son, now this is the third time I'm telling you. I love you, but I'm serious, right? Number one on your notes. Obedience is the key to successful evangelism. Don't paint it up. Don't make it complicated. It's obedience. Let's look at some case studies here in the Bible. Go to, to um, Acts 26, a few pages over. There's our Acts 26 I was saying earlier. The biggest, most influential groups that Paul evangelizes in his life are um, Caesar's court. Remember, it was prophesied, you're going you're gonna to preach the gospel for Caesar before you go to heaven, and King Agrippa. He does it back to back. Both times he gives his testimony when he speaks to the biggest courts. This is the second time. He's already spoken to Caesar. Now he's in King Agrippa's court. And it's not just the king. It's the everybody. So this is what he says when he's speaking to, to King Agrippa and all the courts, all the influencers. This is Billy Graham's biggest crusade as far as numbers and, and affluence, right? This is like you're sharing the gospel in the White House. Verse 15, so I said, who are you? This is his encounter on the, uh, on the road to Damascus. So I said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He's telling his testimony about how he got knocked off the donkey and got saved dramatically. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I don't do anything without a purpose. I'm God. To make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. God doesn't speak just more than once. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified, who are sanctified by faith in me. Look at the next text, the next verse, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, my whole ministry, my whole life, the reason I'm standing on the big stage, the big time, the reason why I'm here, I was not what? I wasn't disobedient. I did what he said to do. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And verse 20 says, but I declared it in Damascus. In just a little town, I started in. I just started right where I fell off that donkey and got back up again and said, oh, God, save me. I'm sorry. I was going against you. I'm not doing that again. I was not disobedient. He starts in Damascus, a little more, 
a little more. It even it says Damascus, Jerusalem, throughout the region of Judea, then the Gentiles. You see the progression. You see being faithful with the small, being obedient in the small, and then God's given them more and more. All successful evangelism is just saying, Lord, I'm going to be obedient. I decide I will obey whatever you tell me to do. Now, this is the wonderful thing. If you're a Christ follower and he's your father, he loves you eternally. Does he, is he for you or against you? He's for you. Does he have God wonderful things for you that no eye has seen, no mind has conceived the wonderful things God in ministry has planned for you that you can do? Yes. So therefore you say, God, I, I can do obedience. If I'll just obey you, you'll use me. Come on. Come on. We can all be used by God. So that was Paul and his whole life was just, all right, I wasn't disobedient to that heavenly vision. Find myself. I didn't know I was going to be preaching the gospel to Caesar, to King Agrippa, to the whole known world. He didn't know he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles then. He didn't know he would write three, uh, one third of the books of the New Testament. He just said, I'm, I'm going to be obedient. I'm done kicking against you, Lord. I'm done. I'm not fighting this anymore. Let's look at this. So this is Paul, the apostle. Let's go back to Abraham, our father, father in the faith, at least. Um, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 8 through 11. Listen to his words. By faith, Abraham, what? Obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and went out, what? Not knowing. Oh, that sounds like Philip. That guy just, you go that way. That's what I told you to do. Not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign, as a foreign country dwelling in tent, as a foreigner in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which, was, which has foundations, whose builders and maker is God. Look at verse 11. Then it says, by faith who? Sarah. Let me tell you something about Abraham. He said an example of obedience to his wife. And that is the reason. She struggled, right? Did she struggle in believing in God and trusting? He said example of obedience to her. And he just loved her and tracked her. He made mistakes and so did she. But she's right here in Hebrews 2. Because she said, well, I'm going to follow that. An example of obedience by faith. She said, I'm going to trust the Lord too. I tell I like that. It's Abraham and then right after her, a godly woman, Sarah. All right, let's go back to our text. Enough on that one. Y'all got it. This is why it's so important. Obedience doesn't necessarily have anything to do with intelligence. Pedigree, race, age, education. I have exempted myself from ministries because I thought I wasn't good enough at things. That's not what God says. He says, obey. Come on. All of us are in it now. Can we all obey? Come on. He's good. We can do it. He's for us. I love it. All right, so let's look here. There are always obstacles to obedience. Let's look at the first one. Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Three little words right after that. 
I'm going to send you to Disneyland. Hawaii. What does that text say right there? Three little words. This is desert. I would love to have seen the look on Philip's face. He knows this area. He knows where people are and where people aren't. He knows the desert. There's like four people and a blind dog there. The desert? You want to move mightily in the desert? And I tell you, we all have desert places in our life, right? Places of evangelism that you look out and you like, it ain't going to grow there. Mm-hmm. And he says, you watch me move in the desert. You obey where I tell you to go, and you'll watch miracles in the desert. Huh? That is God's plan, God's purposes. So what does this teach us about these obstacles to evangelism? Number two on your notes. Don't frown at desert opportunities. You got that coworker? You're like, oh my goodness. They're so spiritually dressed like the Sahara. Oh my goodness. You may, you want, you may like, not like frown. Maybe eye roll. You like eye roll. You want eye roll. Oh, I've seen huh? Huh? Don't frown at desert opportunities. God has great things that it looks in the natural. Blah. God doesn't function like that. He supersedes it all. When he speaks, it changes. If he says, water come forth that desert, it must come forth. He's God. And his word doesn't return void. And if he wants to raise someone out of the stinking desert and pull them up to be a great man or woman of God, our family or any other way, he'll do it for his good pleasure and his glory. And matter of fact, he'll be glorified. When a spring comes up in the desert, no one says, well, you know, he was a pretty good guy. No, they say Jesus must be here. Mm-hmm. I learned this several years ago. I did missions for many years. And the last year, um, I was, you know, you, it's like a pecking order. Once you do missions for many years, you get to pick where you want to go. Well, I was like, I'm going to go back to Africa. I love Africa. I mean, that's where I'm going. But that summer, the Lord said, no, I want you to go to Mexico on the border town, and I want you to build houses on the border. It's about 112 degrees in the shade, June, July, and August, when you have huge countries, it's hard ministry, all this stuff. I thought, Lord, can I please go back to Africa? Please? I really love Africa. I tell you, Lord, I love Peru. The mountains are beautiful, and the people are great there, and there's great churches we can work with. Lord, I don't want to go to the border town. In, in, it was literally, it's a trash dump. They closed it down now. It was a giant trash dump. People used to go and get, the poorest would get uh, you know, materials and stuff they could sell. And there was a huge community. And it was an a, a old Hispanic man. He was an American citizen, building homes, preaching the gospel, all that. So the Lord said, no, you go where I told you to go. So I said, all right, I'll do what you tell me to do. That's fine. So that summer, finished school we know heat. Look, it's Louisiana. We know heat. This is, I don't understand heat after. I, I don't get heat. I didn't know it could be that hot anywhere on the planet. But at the beginning of the summer, the Lord said, I'm going to move here. So what he told me. The beginning of the summer, I'm going to move here. So a week passes, two weeks passes, three weeks passes, a new group comes in, a new group leaves, all that kind of stuff. The last group of teens was a huge country, 155 kids. The Lord said, I'm going to move here. We had good ministry. Some people got saved. We're building homes, growing the local church. And I don't say this flippantly. 
the Lord came down in one of the most powerful ways I've ever seen. Methodists got spirit-filled. Baptists are falling out, laying on the ground. This is an outdoor concrete shed we crammed into. It, no, it didn't have, it was open air. It wasn't a shed, it was, it was open air. When God moved so strong, this is how strong he moved. The bus driver, because our service went late, we called a special service in the morning for all of our teens getting ready to send them out, and the Lord moved so powerfully. The bus driver gets out. He's not saved. We just contracted him. He's walking toward the, he's walking toward the, um, the building. He's about 50 feet from us. I remember this so well because I'm standing on the platform and trying to do the service correctly, and God's just moving. I'm not preaching. There's none of that. And I look over, and the bus driver gets about 50 feet, and he freezes right there. And I look at him and just tears start running down his eyes. Right there, there's a, there's a tree on his left. We sent one of the translators who gave his heart to the Lord right there. Now that's God moving in the desert. Huh? Don't frown at the desert. Don't frown. God will do such great things. Oh, he'll do such great things. Did I mention I also happened to meet my wife on that trip too? The Lord gave me a wife on that trip. That's just a little, <laughs> a little side note there. All right, let's keep going here. This is desert. All right, let's go down to verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. And I've kind of mushed 20, 30, 29 and 30 together. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, guys, we got to see this picture. Hey, hey, Jewish guy, I want you to take off running at the big black dude in the chariot. Come on. That's awkward. That, that's weird. I mean, the Lord's told me to do some things, but I'm like, uh, Lord, I'm just a good little Jewish boy. This guy's got an entourage. He's got security, and he could break me in half. I'm assuming. I don't know. But he's got security. We know a man of great stature, man of great wealth. He was in charge of, of the whole uh, treasury. So he's got money with him, and he's got security. If you got money with you, do you have security? You know you do. You know there's some spears. So he says, you run, you, get, you catch up to that chariot. So the only way to catch up is take off running. I, it's just an awkward situation, right? This is where we stumble at evangelism. This is where, right here. When something feels awkward, we lean away from it instead of into it. It gets some, we say something off. We, we, we were trying to explain the Trinity and we got off on something. We were trying to talk to them and ask them a question and maybe they got lost, right? Now this is the key right here. It was awkward. Oh, it was. He just had to step out in faith and obey. But just for a little bit. I blew the surprise on my notes. Number three, obeying is only awkward for a short time. Why was it only awkward for a short time? He runs up to the chariot in faith trying to figure out how in the world are you going to open a door here, Lord? How in the world is this going to be a Jesus time? What? And I'm, I'm going to die right here. I'm going to be the martyr. Stephen's a martyr. I guess me too right here by a spear. He runs up there and what does he find? 
God, the sovereign God of the universe, has already laid everything out for him. He prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. The guy's sitting there reading his Bible and doesn't understand it. Looking for someone, he's like, I need a Bible study. I need a Bible study. It was only awkward for a little time. Right? Come on, come on, y'all wait. Come on, amen, right? It's only awkward for a short time. We need to understand that we, God will get us through that 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 short period will end and God has something miraculous on the other side. And we have to decide, all right, I'm going to get through that awkwardness. I'm not just going to be, I'm done, oh, this is too much, or that's too weird, or that one conversation didn't go well. God had laid all of this out. The Spirit of the Lord is so much bigger and greater. The guy's standing there with an open Bible, reading out loud. Most theologians believe he was reading to or conversating with whoever was driving the chariot because dignitaries never drove. They always had a driver. Like, you know, dignitaries now, they don't drive. They get in the back seat in their armored vehicle. They got a driver. So this, he was speaking out loud, and the guy's running up and like, he's reading the Bible. I got this. Obeying is only awkward for a short time. We must get through that and understand that's a barrier, just a natural thing we have to step through. We have to go through, and that's where the miraculous happens on the other side. That's where it happens. I would never have a second sermon in my life if I would have stopped at the first one. Unmitigated disaster at 18 years old. Why in the world we ever give an 18-year-old a mic? Don't ever do that. Here's a mic, Stephen. Here's all the middle school chapel. They don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. Here's four pages of notes. Here's a seven-minute sermon of yelling, spitting, because that's all you knew to do. You had braces, and you're yelling and spitting, and the kids are falling asleep, and you're jumping in their face. Oh, a disaster. A disaster. But the Lord said, I called you to preach. I got through that, and God's blessed me in that. We got to get through it, right? Say, you got to determine, this is going to be a short time, and I'm going to see the greatness of God on the other side. Here's another one now. Is this cross-cultural ministry? What, what is this guy's nationality? He's Ethiopian. He's not from there. This is cross-cultural ministry. This is God saying, I don't care what culture, I don't care the division between culture, what you're dealing with, I'm greater. Don't ever tell yourself, I can't minister to them. I'm not like them, I'm different, I'm this, I'm absolutely not. I've decided this scripture, Lord, black people love me. Old people love me. Young people love me. Rich people love me. Poor people love me. Hispanic, whatever, they don't speak the language. God of heaven and earth, you're greater. And I will not let any of that, anything that's awkward in them or me, we're going to go forward. I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to come running up with a side. Maybe I'll jog slowly. Maybe not running. With a smile on my face, I'm going to get through that because God pulled all barriers down on the cross. Amen? And we have to think like that. Come on, we're biblical thinkers. This is cross-cultural ministry he's dealing with right here. And he's in the vast minority. The entourage is from where? They're all from Ethiopia. He's in a desert place. There's not a Jewish settlement. It's, it's weird. He's by himself. There's no, nothing in the text that says there's anyone with him. He obeys the Lord and he has unbelievable influence, although he's the minority in this situation because God's with him because he's obeying God. Come on. That's what we're going to do. It's only awkward for a short time. Come on, say short time. All right. The goodness of God's on the other side. 
the salvation, the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is always good. All right. Let's look at this. We're here in Acts 8, verse 31. And he said, the Ethiopian, how can I? The question was, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? How beautiful are the the feet that bring good news, right? How can they know unless they've heard? How can I unless someone guides me? Unless someone talks to me about salvation apart from works about the grace of God, about the beauty of Jesus Christ, about how we are broken and separated from God. These are just different parts of salvation. About there is sin and judgment upon all ungodliness, and the only way to salvation is the person and work of Jesus. How can we unless someone guides me? You know what that tells me? Number four in your notes. Determine you will be God's someone. I've determined I'm going to be God's someone. Not because I'm a pastor. It's not my natural bend. I say that evangelism. I've determined it's going to be because I'm going to be someone. Okay, Lord. The Ethiopian goes, unless someone guides me, all right, God, I can be the someone. I'll obey. I won't put barriers up culturally or any other way. I don't care about awkwardness. I want to be your someone because I want to see the lost saved. I want to proclaim the gospel. I want to see cultures and families change. I want to see those that are in captivity be set free by the power of God. And I have seen it and we've seen it in this church and we're going to continue to see it in a greater way, in a greater way because God's so great and we're all going to say, I'll be someone. Amen. It's just, we have to, we are not trying to grab a hold of God reluctantly. Where, you know, he's, oh, I guess if you beg and cry, that's not what we're trying to do. That's not what the, the gospel is. It's us actually grabbing hold and believing he will use us to do great things. Amen. What did the disciples pray? Lord, increase our faith. Teach us how to trust you. Teach us how to obey. Teach us how to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. That's what God's really doing. He's not reluctant. Oh, well, you know, the Acts is over. Oh, the Protestant Reformation is over. Oh, the charismatic movement is over. No, not at all. The God of heaven has good things. David said, I had lost hope unless I had believed. I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, not in the sweet by and by, in my generation. So I say, God of heaven, I trust you. Move. Let's do great things. I don't want to disqualify myself. That's what we're not going to do. All right. We're not going to do that. Determine you will be God's someone. I was not disobedient, Paul said, to the heavenly vision. All right, let's, let's round home here. Verse 35. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning at this scripture, God gave him a door open. God gave him an open door. He walked through it. He didn't have to pray heaven down and break down the brick wall. God had a door open for him. Walk through it. If God calls you to Africa, great. Or wherever, great. But you also have neighbors. 
and family members and people you see all the time and people that are right there. He started with this scripture. He opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture preached what? Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus to him. Jesus to him. He preached Jesus. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not getting lost. Let me give you an example. This is a complicated culture. This is a busy world. Information is constant. Distraction, therefore, is constant. My children somehow can actually watch three things at once and it not bug them. They can be looking at, during their TV time, that kid's iPad, holding a game in their hand, and the TV's on. My brain wants to explode or turn to mush just by watching their activity. That's just their brain. That's the way they grew up in this culture. It's normal for them. So constant distraction off of primary, like whatever they were watching, is an issue we're all, we all deal with in this culture. We must be aware of it, and we must remember that Philip said, I preach Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'll give you an example in our culture. Um, Monday, I believe, I found out about, it's been all over Facebook and the news locally in Acadiana, the drag queen story time. It's ungodly. I oppose it absolutely 100%. It is a perversion between God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a perversion between the picture of Christ and His bride. That's why it's so detrimental to children. You know, I, I was an active citizen. I wrote the mayor president and thanked him for opposing it. I wrote the library system and said, I pay taxes. No, I you know, did what I could do as a citizen, but I need to remember this is not my mantra. I will absolutely oppose it. I stand for righteousness and biblical authority. It's contrary to it. Easy, easy, done. But I have to remember, I preach Jesus. Because I ha- the only way to change sinful hearts is Jesus. The only way that a sinner even desires righteousness and is not lost in their sins is Jesus. Therefore, without Him, there's no hope anyways. I'm dealing with this. I'm trying to fix life this way. We only fix life this way. No man changes the heart. Only He does. Amen? Lastly, on your notes, make the cross your most frequent topic of conversation. Please be active citizens in all we do. Active in our culture, leaders in our culture. If you're in a public office, function as godly righteousness. And we as citizens need to remember, excuse me, we as citizens of heaven, Christians, need to remember our primary is the, is the cross. Not because that's not important, but because I know I can't affect change without the cross. Right? One last scripture here. 1 Corinthians 1.17 to illustrate this. We're going to read verse 17 and then skip down to 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? But to preach the gospel. If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. I'll take it. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of 
be made of no effect. Now skip down to verse 22. For the Jews request a sign. They want physical evidence. There's the distraction. Show me something, church. Show me something. Show me something. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, Jesus is good, but this, you know, everyone can have his own truth. Everyone can have his own right. You know, what about this religion? What about that thought? What about that philosophy? Here's the other distraction. You have the, the, the philosophical one. The Jews seek after wisdom. But we, say we. we. Come on, look at the person next to you and say we. We preach what? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. The only way to God. Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. Paul had a complicated culture in his time also. It was complicated. Dominated by Roman military power. Influenced by Greek culture. I mean, it was, a, it, was, it was a melting pot like America. It was complicated. And he said, don't get distracted this way and don't get distracted that way. You preach Christ crucified. Amen. Amen. All right. Now we're going to do an altar call a little differently as we do every week some kind of altar call. There's two videos you're going about to watch. One is a short one done by me. That means it's going to be very poor quality. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a video arts person. That's why other people are here, praise God. Um, as I said, I did missions and stuff. That happened to be in an area east of Dallas about an hour in a nothing town called Garden Valley. <laughs> they don't even have a traffic light. I'm not, I'm not lying. But there in Garden Valley, you've probably heard the name Keith Green. If you're older, he died um, in 82, 29 years old. He was a prolific singer, uh, holiness, repentance, he was killed in a, a plane crash, I'm sorry, a plane crash there. And then another name you may have heard, Leonard Ravenhill. He was Welsh, English-born, had a church, revivals in England and in America in the 30s and 40s, died in 1994. They're both buried there. I'm, I'm going somewhere. So 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, uh, as a young man, just knowing that God's called me to ministry and just starting doing anything for the Lord, um, some of the leaders, on the first year I went on missions and stuff, uh, evangelizing. The first year I started to evangelize, they said, hey, we're going to go to a graveyard. I said, oh, I'm in a cult. I went the wrong way. No, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm joking. They were great men of God. They brought me to this gravesite, and there are these people buried. They said, you know, it's so important that you, it, when you're in a generation, that you grab and pull from the previous one, and that you reach forward for the next one, for he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And right here we have three generations represented. Teens, middle age, later. That you reach back and say, Oh God of heaven, what you did, I, what they had, I want. And what you're doing, show me, I want. You hold both. You don't, you don't say, Here we shall die. In this, put a peg in the ground and say, This is it. Don't do that. <laughs> and don't get on the cutting edge. That's the bleeding edge too. You just hold both. So you're going to see a short video of me at this gravesite, and then we're going to show one um, of Leonard Ravenhill. So you can play that first one, please. This was Monday. This is Garden Valley, Texas. I'm not sure if there's even a stoplight here. Garden Valley Baptist Church in the background. The cemetery. 
where Leonard Ravenhill was buried. Please read that headstone. Just a few feet up. Also, Keith Green, his two children, they were killed in a car in a plane plane crash, just a few miles from here. I'm totally alone here, no one else is here today. Leonard Ravenhill had a quote on that tombstone you just saw, and this is what it said. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Well, that'll put it in perspective, won't it? That should hit you deep in your soul. Okay, God, I'm going to live for you above all your kingdom and your glory. Now, how do I walk this life out to proclaim your greatness? To bring as to many as I can that you would call to me saying, come on, we're going to serve Jesus together and go. You're about to listen. This is our altar call and way we're going to end our service. We've got four minutes left. Not four. It's a six-minute video. We're going to go two minutes over. You're going to listen to an audio by Leonard Ravenhill. It's hard to understand. He's got a strong English accent. I, I shouldn't tell you all this. You're going to think I'm weird. I listened to this video via YouTube standing at his grave. I actually stuck it on his gravestone so it would amplify so I could hear it. Because I, I need that statement to burn in me by the Holy Spirit, not by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill was a revivalist preacher. He also wrote the book, uh, Why Revival Tarries. It's a phenomenal book. Now, he's, he's extreme. Look, he's a revivalist. I mean, he's nonstop Jesus. Just die for him. I, I mean, I understand. Look, we got to go to work. Like, I got to feed kids. I got to actually finish so the kids children ministry don't kill me. I, I understand. Real life. But this is our altar call. Listen to this. We'll pray these words sink deep in your heart, and then we'll end the service. This is Leonard Ravenhill speaking. I believe there's only one hope for our generation, and that's the divine intervention. We talk about revival. It's a safe guess not one of us here has ever been in one. We've been in good meetings, but not in revival. Revival is the most chaotic thing, the most destructive thing, the most terrifying thing that you can imagine. Why isn't Elijah in Hebrews 11? I preach on Hebrew. I like that chapter. I'll tell you why. Every time I read Hebrews 11, I finish up on the floor. Why? Because men and women subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. In other words, they shook whole kingdoms, and not one of them ever had a Bible. Dear God, where are we? 
Isn't this the greatest thing, this side of heaven, the word of the Lord came to me? What did Jesus do when he was tempted? He threw the book at the devil. It is written, it is written, it is written. You have a vision. Work by the vision. It doesn't do me any good. I must have the word of God. I can face the world, the flesh, the devil, everything. As long as God has said it. His word abides forever. God is still on the throne, but he's not sitting there nervously waiting for a letter to come up from Dallas to say that the men in the seminary have decided the Bible is infallible. Go hide thyself in a lonely place. We don't like that. Go hide thyself. John Knox has come back to Scotland. His voice is worth 500 trumpets. We need a man like that today in the nation. A man with authority. You don't question his credentials. Dear God, what does he do? The Holy Ghost anointing doesn't come with degrees or diplomas. It's by hiding away in the secret place of the Most High. And here this man stays for about three years, not three days. True revival changes the moral climate, the moral climate of a, of a district. I told Wilkerson, he used to live by the side of me now, lives in. I said, David, there's no biblical authority for you, Billy Graham, or Roberts, or anybody else, have a one-night stand. Finney didn't do that, the Apostle Paul didn't do it. it, it's not there. Men stay for days. Do you know Finney would go to some crusades and not make an altar call until it preached for 28 days and nights. Now the guy goes in, wants to break up the fallow ground, sow the seed, and gather the harvest in half an hour. That's baloney. It's either something the money can't buy. You can't bestow it. You can't pass it on. It originates in God. It has to be born in me. And may men die. We're boasting without something we don't have. It's a theology. It's a phrase. It's a technique. I want an invasion of God. I want a God to settle over a community. It only comes by birth pangs. Somebody may have mentioned that great revival through Jonathan Edwards, one in the 1700s, when he prayed that sermon that is still read, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But listen, he spent the whole night before that with a group of choice people praying and fasting and weeping. Dear God, you'd be amazed how many young men write and ask me, would you like to pass your mantle on to me? So I write back, no, I'll, I'll send you some nice sackcloth, I'll never hear from them again. <laughs> that kills them. Oh, you're the new Apostle Paul and I want to be a Timothy, forget it. You know these marvellous exegetes, they can always find some reason. So the big boys on TV say, I'm not afraid to ask you to give me money. Ask a widow, he lied to do that. Listen, he didn't ask every, every widow in the nation to do it. <laughs> He asked one woman to do it. It was two in the morning, I know it was creepy. I was wide awake, fully conscious, reading the word, and I read the second death. And a voice at the side of me said, hell has no exit. Do you think I went to sleep? 
I went to speak at a meeting where they let 12 prisoners come in in white suits. And as soon as they walked in, the other thing that came to me, hell has no parolees. No parolees. One sin, it's there forever and ever and ever. You can do something here tonight you can't do in heaven. It's too late to do it there. Do it here. Readjust your prayer life. Readjust your fasting. Readjust your giving. Ask God that these dry eyes become a fountain of tears. Ask God for a broken heart. There has to be a divine intervention. Go hide thyself. Go show thyself.